0: This podcast is offered to you by Zen Center North Shore, on the web at www.zencenternorthshore.org. This program is made possible by donations from listeners like you.
1: By way of just a little introduction, and I'm going to change my name real quick. Um, you know, I'm. This is kind of okay. This is a little bit of a continuation of what's turning out to be um, a Thursday night California series. <laughs> so you're you're part of a, a lineage of of guest speakers from the West Coast. So we have a lot of good Dharma friends out there too, and you're one of them. It's one way that we can work with the time difference, you know, and not ask you to be giving a Dharma talk at 530 in the morning on a Sunday. So it's just, it's a real delight to welcome Gyoke Yokoyama. He's coming to us from uh, Los Angeles, Um, a Soto Zen Buddhist priest who's got a Sangha and a temple, two different groups that he works with. Japanese American congregation and also Americans, and he's got a whole YouTube following. (laughs) Um, And I'm just really thrilled to um, introduce you to this, uh, what I feel deeply in my heart, this example, and this human being of sincere and true bodhisattvic practice, just straight from the heart. And uh, we've only met each other, I think, once or twice, maybe. <laughs> um, but uh, we reunited when I saw Gyoke on the um, New York Zen Center for Contemplative Cares speaker series, which has been a wonderful way to uh, for a lot of different uh, individuals, practitioners, and teachers to reconnect. So I'm so grateful for that. Um, so I don't want to take too much time here, but just to say... Welcome very much, Gyoke, welcome deeply to uh, Zen Center North Shore, which is, you know, <laughs> doesn't really mean much these days, but very grateful that you've taken the time to be with us. Thank you very much.
2: Well, thank you very much, yuzen san or Joanne. I, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so wonderful to see you again and it, it's so great. Uh, to see the Sangha in Massachusetts. Um, I have a particularly fond memory uh, in Massachusetts. This, that's where my journey in Western Zen started with my trip in 2006 visiting Bonnie Glassman uh, when he was active. I think it was just right after he established the Maizumi Institute. And again, definitely my truly deep, uh, profound respect to Shinju Suzuki Roshi. And all the students have been my superheroes. They saved my priesthood. They put me back into the truck of Soto Zen. <laughs> I was so ready to quit this. <laughs> so, um, anyway, I'm not gonna go into that part of the story. But um, so, yes, and also before I start, I'd like to express my uh, deep appreciation and respect to everything um, Johnson does uh, for the immigrants' families. And down in Long Beach, south of Los Angeles, uh, as with uh, the interface as an interface programs, we have been discussing all these challenges the families of immigrants are facing. So, um, and I myself got involved in the children of immigrants from Brazil and Peru back in 2008 in Japan. Um, so, um, I, Truly uh, respect what you do, and inspire. I find it very inspiring. So, thank you. Now, I would like to share today. Um, I was wondering if I could just briefly share the pictures on the screen, but I, I recognize it's not. Oh, is it possible? Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> uh, huh? Let me see. I just wanted to show you briefly where I come from, and it will be very, very, very short. Um, so this is just a picture where I serve. It's a very small church-looking Buddhist facility uh, built by the Japanese-Americans who, are, uh, who came back uh, to this particular place, not a greatest place in the city, but that's where the Navy apartments were available for those who were le- released from the internment camp right after World War II. And they created this building. They built this to make it look like a Christian church, so that they won't be, I guess, didn't disguise, because back then Buddhists were subject to discrimination, and they have been keeping this place for the last sixty-three, four years. Now, it's my small congregation. You can see the ch- the ladies who are the children of those who survived World War II, and I see there's a couple of my few of my students there. And we also have a lot of small zendel, which is usually a garage filled with oil. So it was so stinky when we started renovating this place. And then there's there's no budget. So we just bring whatever is available. And we have some non-Japanese uh, members, friends who come here. And I also now serve Zenji Buddhist temple, which is also a very small temple, but yet affiliated with uh, one of the head monasteries, Soto-shi, have a very cozy, a small group here as well. And then finally, I serve, oh, sorry, the Zenshuji Temple. There's a Soto Zen uh, North America office, <laughs> which is the, which is a, which kind of represents the bureaucracy of Soto Shu, if you know anything about that part of the history. <laughs> Just a little brief um, explanation of how the heck in the first place I'm speaking English is I have been in um, I have this sort of a, reconnection with uh, Winnipeg and Manitoba since I was 16. So, and then just want to mention that my son was born uh, in Ontario, Canada. So all my Western influence mainly came through Canadian culture of immigrants. So I just want you to know that's also my background from my teenage years. I'm going to stop here. Oh, no, sorry. (laughs) Just a little bit more. And then myself, I was born and raised in a temple called Iwoji Temple, which is very typical—a uh, temple in a sense that I, it was inherited, was uh, passed down to my generation through hered- hereditary system. It's about it was built about late 700s, so it's fairly old. And the town that I grew up looked kind of like this, with all the old sh- shrines and mountains, esoteric Buddhist. Uh, there's a trait of esoteric Buddhist, Buddhism with all the falls and uh, offspring. In a sense, it's very typical. I've ever been to Japan. Uh, I hope you check this out. <laughs> in addition to Kyoto or Tokyo. Um, so this is kind of how uh, my place looks like. And then I train in IH Monastery. If you've seen the YouTube video, video it's... So that was back in 2000 before I graduated from school. I took uh, some off, time off from college and went there. And then I just did a basic intensive practice study there. right? And then, as I said, after I finished my training, I had a chance to visit Massachusetts to see Bonnie Glassman. That was the beginning of my journey for and Zen practice in the West. Now, today I'd like to share um, the subtleness and something you could probably in a specific way you can do for your practice, which sort of helped me. <laughs> I have tons of stories of failures, which, basically I, which was basically what I shared in New York Zen Center. So again, thank you so much. Now occasion to welcome Autumn is a very special time i'm sure for many of us regardless of our traditions or cultures and even if you're not religious i, I, I learned a specific word september enthusiasm from my friend in winnipeg i used to do cross-country run it was my favorite sport so that was a great time to sort of come back to our aspiration uh, the vows and strengthen our our sort of i guess vows our determination now, the special week in a Japanese calendar uh, is, you know, it starts from September 19th to 25th. So technically, this is still this ohigan week, the time we are still contemplating on the practice. Now, ohigan, which oh um, is an expression, oh means uh, honorific, sort a word, prefix for higan. Higan, he means other. Gan means the shore. The other shore. So, as we chant at the end of the Heart Sutra, Gate, Gate, Para, Gate, Parasam, Gate, Bodhisattva. Gone, gone, gone to the other shore of enlightenment. So, we come back to the vows, we come back to the precepts, we come back to strengthen our aspiration to complete the practice of giving, generosity, discipline, morality, patience, or constancy energy, effort, meditation, contemplation, wisdom, and pressure. In the Japanese Sotoshu organization, organization that I I do uh, serve on a part-time basis, the organization has this main tenet called Shishobo. It goes all the way back to ancient scripture, but Dogen definitely um, quoted this and then uh, put it in the Shishobo Genzo. Namely, uh, the four significant practices of bodhisattvas. Uh, again, namely giving loving speech, benefiting others. And then at the end, this word comes, doji. And doji literally means same matter or same actions, identical actions. And this has been by far my favorite part of, facet of zen practice although there are many different aspects i kept questioning but this one really resonated with me throughout my practice i just wanted to share what i've learned and how i feel about it while giving loving speech uh, benefiting others uh, all sort of active practice actions doji to me is one practice that has always sort of captured my attention my um a curiosity, sort of kept growing stronger as I pursued my spiritual path. And, and I had not always been conformity with the specific standards of Sotoshu, so I, I needed to take a lot of detours, and this, those detours included uh, my exploration in the world of Christianity, Catholic, Protestants, and it was also kind of expanded to intercultural education for the youth, and well, i blame bernie glassman for the last this one but i got ended up getting involved in local politics in the city council and (laughs) i worked for the community there And, and then also my current work in north america serving the japanese american community and also this wider Zen community maha sangha doji can be said to be like one form of skillfulness or capacity or capability to embody wisdom, compassion, empathy, not knowing, embodying basically our humanity. To practice doji, we identify ourselves with others. Somehow keep using the word in, I think it's grammatically wrong, but we see ourselves in others. And then we want, We will just stay there and then eventually let others identify themselves in us or not. Um, Incidentally, this uh, priest from Shingon tradition, esoteric tradition recently quoted the words of John Keats. I'm not sure how many of you are. I mean, I'm sure if you do this poems, I'm sure you you know. And, And then as an English romantic poet, and he said, negative, he used the word negative capability, and that is when a man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without reaching after fact and reason. He used this word, uh, you know, as, again, the negative capability, saying it's something like a sense without a sense. And father said that this is the true capability essentially has no self, no fixed self or personality. In 1817, he introduced this word uh, when he was referring to sort of the creativity of Shakespeare. Shakespeare's views and opinions were not imposed on his characters. He dropped, he let go of this identity his identity, allowing the story to unfold. According to the mysterious, uncertain, uh, I guess the characters, unrevealed personalities of all. And its story allows people to interpret it according to their own capacity, experience, beliefs, age, genders, cultural backgrounds, I mean, to be honest, I, I'm not, I haven't really did that extensive study, so I'm not sure I'm entitled to mention or talk about Shakespeare's work, but I thought the way he described it, referred to it, was very interesting because it sounds a bit like Zen practice, doesn't it? Myriad stories continue to unfold through myriad functions of the world. I always felt, when I, especially when I was involved in intercultural con- education for the youth groups, that we have the nature to conclude the answer according to this particular capacity that we have, this particular culture that we were raised in, this particular personality of ourselves, our sangha, our community, or country. Yet the story of Shakespeare is not narrated by the Shakespeare. I found that interesting. If story can be narrated by the reader until the reader realizes that story doesn't need anybody sort of narrating. And one large suchness, I guess we use that word, suchness, is free of our own narratives. This one large suchness we share may be narrated by others according to their religion, cultures, and language, the capacity, personality, and the whole context of the society, etc. In the Soto Shu in Japan, we often use the word Kaishu, which is to to, to address sentient beings. Literally means ocean-like beings. And I always thought Sangha is like that. When we take homage to Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, I could immediately understand, or maybe not immediately, but I could understand relatively easily what it means to take homage to Buddha and Dharma. But I always particularly find the third one difficult. Myself, I struggled throughout my whole priesthood. Taking homage to this ocean-like Sangha, free from a fixed self or personality. And Doji is a practice that is deep and very subtle. Yet it has been, to me, the most influential and beneficial aspect of Soto Zen practice that I have cherished in interfaith activity, intercultural education, Local politics or international relations or interlineage relations sometimes, allowing us to indiscriminately serve the Sangha in the West and East, in my case. To serve the Sangha to me means to serve indiscriminately. And because with the practice of doji, there's no self or personality that finds it's necessary. To to sort of stay stay discriminatory. How <laughs> about making sense? Um, I want to finish this part of this, the message by quoting the text from uh, a sutra called Shishodi, meaning of practice and verification, which was compiled by actually a lay practitioner back in 1890, which is basically a summary of Dogen's Shobogenzo. The text goes. It is, for example, like the human Tathagata, who was the same as other human beings. Self and others are not, ours. self and others are without boundaries. The ocean does not reject any water. And this is the ocean. It is because of this that water collects and becomes an ocean. Um, so... That's very subtle, (laughs) subtle, but very helpful uh, part of the message that I've been still cherishing today. Now, uh, I'd like to just throw in one more, uh, something very concrete, because my congregation in Long Beach, they don't want anything kind of ambiguous. They want a very solid, straightforward (laughs) techniques or messages. And they tell me, sensei, that was so, so confusing. They call me sensei. (laughs) I didn't get it. So, <laughs> so I eventually gave up and I decided to offer something, which is uh, called a gemo. And I wonder if you know this through Thich Hand's Hanh's teaching. Um, this is also very useful for our off the cushion practice, off the zafu practice. So everyday activities uh, are sort of all forms of enjoying the offerings this world offers to us and recognizing them and also a lot of times people sort of don't recognize that we are offering a lot back to this world constantly so it's sort of like helps it just helps us recognize this um the meaning of us being in this world how is how we are um, so back in age monastery again <laughs> we were supposed to be chanting these short verses Again, gemon literally means text of verse. The ones you probably know quite well is Sutra opening verse, which goes, done surpassed profound and wondrous dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million copies. Now we can see and hear, accept and maintain, may we unfold the meaning of the Thagadans truth. And there's also a verse for prostration, which I sometimes... Is. Go, which goes the nature of that which can be and used, uh, sorry, the nature of that which can be and is worshipped is empty and still. One's own body and the body of the other are in essence not two. May we together with all beings obtain liberation, giving rise to the supreme intention, relying on the ultimate truth. So those are part of the services. So most quite often, like where we try to chant it whenever we have these opportunities. And then there are ones that we chant while we're taking a shower, before we take the shower. bathing the body, may all living beings be clean, in body and mind, pure and shining, within and without. When we wake up in the morning, we go to the bathroom, when we're about to brush our teeth, holding the toothbrush, may all living beings attain the true dharma, and be naturally pure and clean. And as I said, this part of tradition, the tradition was introduced so beautifully and nicely by Venerable Thich Nhat Hanh, and using the modern words. And then I think the famous ones is for you, when we wake up in the morning, waking up, in this, waking up this morning, I smile. 24 brand new hours are before me. I vow to live fully in each moment um, and to look, all, to look at all beings with the eyes of compassion. And when you go to bed tonight, <laughs> maybe you can try this. Resting in the ultimate dimension, using snowy mountains as a pillow and beautiful pink clouds as blankets. Nothing is lacking. If you need have some dishes left in the sink, you can try this one. Washing the deceased is like bathing a baby Buddha. The profane is the sacred. Everyday mind is Buddha's mind. Now Thich Nhat Hanh even went on to say when you drive your car, you can say something like before starting the car. I know where I'm going. The car and I are one. If the car goes fast, I go fast. There's one for talking with your friends on the phone, drinking tea. But to be quite honest, (laughs) we get really overwhelmed with the tight schedule of the monastery. So one time I tried to faithfully, I think I was still new in the monastery, I would try to faithfully go into the bathroom and started chanting this verse quietly. One of my senior monks said, shut up, just finish your bath. And I was so And (laughs) I was so shocked. Um, So, you know, but it's also true. You know, what happens there is uh, just a miniature version of the real world. It's not a heavenly, rosy-colored place. And nonetheless, we continue this practice. It gives us a solid, realistic sense. But I always found this particular practice useful. And after hearing all the poems of the members, I thought this might (laughs) be writing out. Um, I'm not poetic, so we have a particular line in Long Beach which goes, always goes, whenever we do something, made a humble merit of sharing the message be extended to our loved ones, families, and friends, and to all peoples, and to all living beings. It's just a fixed line, and I realized that, well, we could use this for any moments when you're folding the laundry, when you're locking the door, or when you're driving to somebody's house. And I was interested how, what it does to your mind, if this is such a specific practice with your speech, affecting your thoughts and actions, and what it does to your subconsciousness. So the doji that I mentioned, if something that happens rather through our subconscious and conscious level, this on is something we can clearly do through our active or conscious effort. And so even someone like me could do this. I forget to do this quite often, but whenever I do this, I find it helpful because I'm often quite hasty and forgetful. Um, so it has been, it's been something I find it quite beneficial. Okay. Uh, Think that's, I think that's all I wanted to share today. Um, I'd like to conclude this my message with this verse that I usually use for our Sangha. May this humble merit of sharing the Dharma talk, sharing your presence, sharing your time, and good wishes, our thoughts, our dedication, all be extended through ourselves, to our loved ones, families, and friends, to all people, to all living things. Namuki A-Butsu, Namuki A-Butsu, Namuki A-S-O. Thank you so much. Gracias.
1: Wow, thank you. Muito obrigada. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is, it's wonderful to hear from you, Yoke san Thank you so much. So this is, uh, yes, this is, uh, I don't know, do you guys, do you feel it? This is a lot of energy, very different kind of energy for us. So, Yoke san are you up for spending some time with us with questions and some conversation? Cool. Okay, Um, anybody immediately have anything that you'd like to ask or share? I'd like to, maybe this will jumpstart people a little bit, but you know, one thing that I, I really feel is the formality of your presence, your what's behind you, your robes, Seeing the pictures of Aheji, oh, <laughs> that's like so. You know, that's like like um, Zen. You know, classical Zen. Like you don't get much more classical than that. And 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 yet you are so modern. You know, you're young, you're youthful, energetic. Um, I just think that's a beautiful, vibrant, and alive dynamic to have both. To have this really traditional training in Zen, and you know, to have this expression in your life and just in your body of what the teaching is, that it's not something that's dead, that's something it's something that's alive, and that's something that through your particularity is being expressed. I'm just I'm really getting a hit of that tonight. Um, I don't know. Have we had any Japanese guest speakers? Yuke sama, you might be the first one. I, I'm not sure.
2: Isho san before he, I'm sorry. Who? Isho Fujita, I believe is just another.
1: No, Isho Fujita. No, not yet. I'm hoping he'll come. No, they haven't met Isho san yet. <laughs> I'm <laughs> looking forward to that though. You, you, you might be the warm up for him. Um, Kate, before you, you. Oh, Kate. Oh, yes, of course, Kaz Tanahashi. <laughs> Kaz is more like a Japanese Berkeley hippie. <laughs> He's one of these, you know, Kaz Tanahashi son. Yeah, he came. Of course, Kate, as soon as I saw you, I remembered, yeah, Kaz. Kaz was here um, a couple years ago. He gave a whole week of teachings around his his new book at the time, Painting Peace. Um And his flavor is very particular to him. You know, it's true. But, um, and and he's not a priest. So that's another difference. So, okay, okay, I'm really interested in the Sangha meeting you, seeing your expression as classically trained Zen priest. I don't know, I wonder if you would share with us your day. What's your day like? What is the practice schedule at your two practice places? How do you divide your time? Do you see your day as being like, part of it is like medieval Japan with the chanting and, you know, and then part of it is more like on the streets. Are you active with the city council in LA or is that in Massachusetts? Like, would you just tell us a little bit more about what your personal life is like, your, your, your daily life right now?
2: Sure. Sure. Thank you. Um, I, I mean, Joranda, uh, I know you were in the, the Tassajara, uh, you know, San Francisco Zen Center. So to me, that's, that's a real big thing. That's like, that's a real deal thing that kind of blows my mind. And if anything, I, I'm, you know, what the aftertaste of this practice, one, classical practice at AHG was quite honestly, I failed. I failed completely. I failed. So that was <laughs> honestly how oh, I felt that I do not deserve to be in a row. So it's just a constant. It was just back, in, back in my early 20s. I mean, you, you would go through struggles anyway in the early 20s. Mine was mixed with a little, little bitter feeling of failure. Um, so I wouldn't say that I came out of the practice proudly saying that was a beautiful practice. That was actually the opposite. I felt there were a lot of things that I questioned and I think it was my naiveness or lack of recognized ability to recognize what it means to practice Zen. So I'm 40 now, 41. Yeah, no, sorry, <laughs> I turned 42. So during the last 20-some 20, 20 years, it was this journey to find out what it means to be a socialist zen practice. So <laughs> always in working process. That's how I feel about myself. Um, about my daily life. I serve, I was just delivering a couple of uh, pickled (laughs) plants to a couple of ladies who live like two cities away. Um, Let's see, I serve, I help my friends in the international center, um, connecting people. I clean well, this place, and probably not as diligently as members want me. (laughs) <laughs> but I, let's see, then I just did a weeding of the garden, so, which is probably just something very ordinary. And I write uh, articles to the local newspapers. Like I was saying, I was also participating on Zoom with other ministers uh, talking about social justice, coming up election. So that we do as well. Um, and then there are more times to just lie down on the couch, watching uh, CNN, BBC, and I will never miss CBC because that's where my son is. <laughs> so, right? I so I'm. It's not like I'm. I'm just someone up in the above the clouds. You know, I'm just as ordinary as I as anyone else. But that's also i guess if anything i do share time with my students and emphasis is always on being aligned with with the need or lively life of the sangha members Um, whatever needs arises from the sangha members we respond we have a certain ideal. we have a certain idea about practice but we do not adhere to it. There's a fine line, because it can, it can easily be a compromise. But so we have a certain sort of a sort of integrity that we don't want, sort of let go. We want to maintain. But this integrity also sort of fluctuates according to the circumstances and context of the members. We get calls from Mochili, We get calls from the members asking us, asking me to go visit them, uh, get calls, or somebody from whole Street shows up and I listen to the talk of homeless person sometimes, a few hours, sometimes. <laughs> there were three occasions where they came and wanted somebody who would listen to them. So I think that's also a big part of what we do here in the South of Los Angeles, where there's so many homeless people up here. Um, so I, I can't really say that my life is sort of structured the same way as it was back in the monastery. It's pretty unpredictable, but more or less there's a weekly schedule of Zen practice um, like each day and evening at this temple and at the Sozin's temple. So that helps me feel grounded, to be honest.
1: Yeah, I hear that completely. I'm very grateful for daily Zazen. <laughs> Um, and what is the difference? Could you describe a little bit the difference between the two practice places?
2: Yes. So, well, oh, that's right. Sorry. I should have properly talked about it. Long Beach Buddhist Church, as you can see in the back, there's a statue. And let me see. You might want to see a little change of the screen. screen. <laughs> so I'd like to show you. So this is a particularly the statue made particularly for this church. And we call this place a Buddhist church, following the Land Buddhist schools of Japanese-American communities. And the founder, Reverend Osada, comes from Soto Zen Mission, like Zen Shuji Soto Mission. <laughs> but I, I think he, what he wanted to achieve was when the Japanese-Americans were released from the camp, there were members for, from esoteric Buddhist schools, Land Buddhist schools, Nichiren Buddhist schools, and they were, the word would be solidarity. They were supporting each other to survive that difficult time. So he wanted to create a temple which is non-denominational um, in pursuit of pure Buddhism, not diluted with the sectarianism, which is a huge challenge for us. Because if you try to find where is the pure Buddhist, Buddhism, it's really hard to pinpoint, but it's their intention a genuineness that has kept this church going uh, for you know, many decades now. Sorry. So our church is non-denominational and it, <laughs> you'll be surprised if I mention too much about Dogan, people here will be upset. That's too much Dogen. We don't want too much Dogen story. <laughs> So uh, sometimes I kind of um, disguise it like, well, one time in the past, this famous monk said, <laughs> and then I quote his teaching. <laughs> now, on the other hand, the so Zen temple that I, I started working, serving from, uh, actually last, last year I was officially installed. But um, after Reverend Tom Cry, who was a famous taiko, teacher, he um, also passed away due to leukemia. I, the members of Sozen's temple wanted me to sort of also support the temple. Um, I think it's because I speak English a little bit better than other, than other I guess, missionaries around this area, being Japanese. Um, this temple is directly affiliated, like I said, with so, sojiji Monastery. And it is an interesting temple in a sense that, uh, you know, if you know anything, the Sojiji Monastery was built by Keizan Zenji. And then Shinju Suzuki Roshi's lineage itself sort of comes from, through Aheishi. So there's a solid uh, <sighs> traits of Dogen's teaching. And I think more or less, as a whole, North American Zen communities are strictly under this, uh, in, in accordance with Dogen's practice, Dogen's teaching. And this is not essentially a teaching thing, but it's, it's rather a bit of a history as Japanese Zen uh, spread through the nation that happened through Keizan's influence who traveled around and his students were quite capable. And through this process, the genuine sitting practice sort of remained, but then also changed, sort of transformed into various practice forms so that farmers, merchants, people of all different classes uh, could somehow feel relatable, related. And from one perspective, that's a deterioration of the pure genuine practice of sitting. And you can see that if you see Japanese temple and Japanese priest. So anyway, Sojiji uh, sort of symbolizes kind of kind of diversification of this practice, uh, localization of the practice, uh, dissemination of the practice. And then Sozenji, Monaster- Sozenji temple that I started serving is actually the only Japanese uh, temple directly connected with Sozenji, sojiji Monastery. So it's like their stronghold. They don't wanna let go <laughs> in this kind of rivalry dynamics. So uh, I don't think they are entirely happy that I am there because I myself come through H Monastery, but they told me to come to Sojiji. I don't know what they're going to tell me to do, but I'm looking forward to it.
1: (laughs) This is fascinating. I'm going to geek out, you guys. Um, This whole conflict within San Francisco Zen Center, Vicky, you may know about this, between (laughs) ji style and Eheji style, like which way you turn away from the altar if you're the Doshi. Big debate about which way we're going to do it. So that even happens within San Francisco Zen Center. But, um, Gyoke, I, I've always had the understanding, the, the, the thought, and this is really kind of interesting, that, that Dogen Zenji with Eheji was, you know, I use that word classical, you know, it was very strict and kind of exclusive in a way. My sense has been that, and because of that, he was a little exclusive, that there was something really clear that was transmitted. But Kazan was able, it, it, this is my view, to open up to more people, to women, to lay people, that he wasn't so exclusive. And that, that, was, that was also helpful for the tradition to be able to continue and so ironically, what I want to, to tell you is for my Tangario practice period at Tassahara, this is back in 2000, <laughs> September 2000, there were 22 of us sitting Tangario and two of the students were from Japan. They were two priests from Japan. One was um, Gakudo Nakamura, I think was his name. His, his father had a small temple. But the other was what was his name, Keiji, Keishi, maybe, from Eheji. And he told me that he had been sent as a spy by Eheji <laughs> to, like, infiltrate Tassahara to figure out how to do it because Eheji saw that unless they opened up to women and lay practitioners, they wouldn't be able to survive. So they wanted to see how it was done at Tassahara. It's very interesting, very interesting to meet them. They were the funnest. So you guys, I just wanna say, and you feel it with Gyoke, I felt it with Hoitsu Suzuki Roshi's son. Every time he came to San Francisco Zen Center, there's an energy in Japanese Zen priests. There's an energy that's very playful um, and vibrant that I, I really appreciate. Sometimes I think we Americans in our earnestness Take ourselves way too seriously. <laughs> so it's very helpful to have the playfulness of, of uh, Japanese priests come around every now and then. I don't know, did you ever meet Huitsu? Have you? Yeah,
2: personally, I haven't. I would love to meet. See, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah he, I remember walking Kinhin behind him, and he just from behind, his whole body was just like energy. Popping, <laughs> you know, very still but very energetic at the same time. All right, let me see. Does anybody else have anything you'd like to say? I don't mean to monopolize the time and space here, Emily. She's I could tell she's just stating a question. <clears throat>
2: Can I ask you a question? Are they, are they, are you all from this, the same area? No?
1: Maybe that would be good. Maybe we could just go around and if everybody, if you would say like where you're from, where you're Zooming in from, and maybe there's a comment or any question that might come out of your time. I'm going to start to call on people if that's okay. Um, I'm going to start with Nick. (laughs) Hi Nick.
0: Hi. Hey. Thank you. Okay. Um, I, uh, I'm in Brooklyn, New York. Um, so, yeah. Um, I don't know that I have all that much to say other than um, thank you. And um, yeah, it's really it's really nice. I I've just kind of been. Um, uh, um, uh, resting in, in, um, your presence on my screen. <laughs> and, uh, and it's fun to hear the conversation, uh, between you and Joan and, um, all these figures who have popped up in like books that I've read, but it's, um, they come more to life when I hear them, um, as like people and others lived experiences so it's cool um and it's also really great to hear um about your work um in in the community and uh very encouraging and i like to talk to homeless people
2: too Thank you. Thank you. I went to Brooklyn Zen Center to meet Taste Trozer. That was a very fun memory for me.
0: Oh, that's yeah. awesome! Yeah, Brooklyn Zen is—it's um, where you know I practiced before. Okay. It, it closed. Yeah. The the um they they are they're, they're moving out right now because they
2: couldn't keep the space. So. I wish you. Yeah. Be yeah. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you.
1: Nick, you want to? We can do the baton thing. Do you want to choose someone? <laughs>
0: Sure. Uh, well, in my grid, Emily is to the right of me, so I'll pass it the time there.
3: Thank you, Nick, and thank you, Giokas, for being here. Uh, what I was just standing on was like trying not to be too general with my question, but I'll just throw it out there. You know, it's interesting to hear you saying, you know, especially you, Joan, just putting it up like not taking yourself too seriously, because I was thinking about those of us who will be uh, sewing, We have several of us studying the precepts on the call and several of us will be sewing over Indigenous Peoples uh, Day weekend. And I guess I'm just, yeah, while you're here, I would love to hear what's helped you with practicing the precepts in your life, just in your day-to-day life, your busy life out here and not in the monastery.
2: The precepts, yes, (laughs) oh boy. That's a tough one for Japanese priests, where we eat fish and meat, you know, where there's a whole expectation of that we're supposed to be vegans, vegetarians. Um, if anything, I think this kind of digestion of the precepts started happening in a more genuine way after I came to North America, because so much can get really, how do I say, uh, formalized. It becomes a little, it it becomes a container but you know we just we keep around, but not fully um sort of i guess you know, <laughs> live live uh, through so recently, I had a funeral service for one particular member who dedicated her entire life for so 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 temple, a new temple. She was the one who brought me to this temple and to honor her you know in a funeral service we conduct, we keep the precepts and then I don't think more than ever I really thought about presenting the precepts to those who really cared about her because um, we did it online, Zoom. And then wanted to sort of really go back to this, what it, what it means, what it means to follow the precepts. And it goes back to, I mean, starting from doing all the good, freely conducting, um, refraining us from doing evil things or bad things, and freely benefiting others, starting with the three pure precepts. There have 10 great precepts we follow. Right? And we take this literally. There are things, the guidelines we try, strive to follow. But when I think it helped me was um, just understanding the essence, the gist that we honor life and honor relationship and keeping our mind calm. Uh, keeping ourselves free of anger and hatred, staying non-judgmental. So there's a little, like, essence in each precept, and I think those essence uh, can be... I think that's kind of how I redigested digest it. (laughs) Because when it comes literally in a formal way, you kind of get sort of, you know... um, (laughs) what I say, um, the essence can get, sometimes gets overshadowed. And that's been my practice with a formal practice. So that, yeah, anyway, that's, that's kind of what helped me.
0: Yeah.
3: Thank you. Yeah, that's extraordinarily helpful. Thank you. Um, well, I'll pass to Lita. How you doing over there, Lita?
4: Thank you. Doing well. Um, happy to be here. It's been a while. Um, oh, from Beverly. <laughs> um, don't have
3: anything to say right now. Only because there's a lot going on up
4: there right
2: now. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to meet you.
1: Chica, I think you had your hand up. Thank you, Lika.
0: Yes, I did. Um, um, Yoke, I heard you say you have a son. Yes. Is that right? Um, I also am a parent. I have um, two nine-year-olds and an 11-year-old, all boys. And I'm curious, How, if at all, you relate to your children at all through your Zen practice? I mean, are they aware? Is your son, first of all, how old is your son? And is he aware of what you do? And what does he think of it? And do you at all share this world with him and interact with him in that way?
2: Uh, Thank you so much. Um, Did you check my Facebook page? (laughs) no i didn't (laughs) you you see my true face there (laughs) i highly recommend you check my true face there (laughs) i have a son uh, seven years old he is uh, he's now second grade started and lives in ontario so every time he's with me unfortunately we got divorced because my ex she was finnish canadian so (laughs) when she came to this japanese american community you know this area is I can't really say it's not, it's not the nicest place, especially for children. He has, my son has Down syndrome. So uh, we may have to, we're anticipating another big heart surgery, which he already did twice uh, when he turns he, in his teens. Um, he goes to actually a local Catholic school, and he loves the baby Jesus story. Every time we go spend time in Christmas together, we go through baby Jesus story at least like 20 times during my stay. <laughs> and I'm happy that he's connected with something traditional. I mean, Zen is, I mean, I mean it's relatively new. Uh, and he knows that I'm a Buddhist priest, and he knows that I do a Sunday service. That's how we call this. And then every time I, I share a talk on, on the phone, on Zoom, no, sorry, um, on Skype, I exchange videos all the time. Even today, I sent two important videos, one garbage truck and the other one was the mower man. Yeah, I will never miss this. Is, this is our part of my practice, <laughs> something constant. <laughs> um, he, I don't really share what I do, but I, I think he understands that I do this practice, and I don't expect him, although, although Japanese, we get ordained at age 10, because the parents somehow guide us into this path in a very sneaky way, <laughs> and we get ordained. Before we realize that we, um, so we have a small robe, small rakusu, and all that, but no, I, I don't expect him. I don't even expect him to be Buddhist. And, and that's kind of what I meant with doji practice, <laughs> if it makes sense. Um, and, but he knows, and then he sees the minister, the pastor there, and he calls the pastor a good man or good guy. And that's how he sees a religious figure. And so it's like an island. I think he will probably go somewhere his mom wants him to try something else. I'm totally cool with that. Um, he's growing up as a fine Canadian man. His grandfather is a Jehovah's Witness. And the rest of the family is totally non-religious. But um, just for him to have a father who does Zen um, practice, who is a Buddhist uh, minister or Buddhist priest, um, and then, that would, and then he continues this practice with certain constancy. Um, that's what I would expect. I think that's what I learned from my own father and not expecting me to be exactly following his footsteps. But I think it remains. Um, sorry, I don't want to keep it too long, but I have one Cambodian man who joins my Zen practice on Monday evening. His father is a Cambodian monk for 40 years. He never met him because in Cambodia, once you're in a monastery, you can't really meet a child. And so this man struggled in his early, early days, but now everything he's seen through his father is aspiring to follow his father's footsteps here in Long Beach, not in Cambodia. And so that's, I think that's how the message gets conveyed. That's might be my experience as well. So I think it's good that you sort of continuously follow what you believe in, with integrity and strength, probably inspiring for a child, children.
1: That's very beautiful. Thank you for that question and that response too, Gyoke. Okay. Um, I did observe children at Tassajara, you know, children of, of monks there kind of growing up. And it seems to be that there's a period of time where they reject. So maybe for the first 20 years, they're not going anywhere near Zen. <laughs> But then after, you know, there's the, it, be, it becomes possible with just time and, and space that they kind of find their way there. Sometimes that seems to happen. Jika, uh, would you like to choose someone else? We have a couple more minutes and a few more people who haven't spoken.
0: Um, I will pick Carolyn.
3: Thank you. Um, just three little snippets I really really appreciated the pictures that you posted they're so beautiful and it was so nice to see um, the variety of places that people practice and um, one of my kind of foundational things that I'm always trying to figure out is the classical and the day-to-day life so I, I love the the bowing and the chants and everything, but sometimes I struggle to see how that can benefit the world. And then at the end, when you talked about the different things you can say, you know, while you're doing your daily activities, I was really, really touched by that. That you know, by putting my intention out in the world, it might help someone. So I just want to thank you for your generosity of being here. It was really nice to meet you, sir. Thank you,
2: common. Great to meet you, Calvin.
3: Can we mention
1: Carolyn where you're from, where you're where you are right now on planning? Oh, I'm a-
3: sorry. I'm on the Gulf Coast in Louisiana. <laughs>
1: <laughs> pretty noteworthy. <laughs> Thank you, Carolyn. Thank you, Mary. Anybody you want to you want to pick? Hand off to? I'm gonna pick Vicki. Is it okay if I picked Vicky on your behalf?
5: you. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Hi. I'm, I'm in North Berkeley, California right now. And Joan and I met um, at San Francisco Zen Center. And I, I I, must have forgotten, but I was reminded recently that we actually sat Tongario together there. Um, and there were a lot of things that you said, um, Yoke, that resonated with me, um, mostly... I was interested in hearing more about your experience in the monastery and, and when you said that there were a lot of things that you, you questioned, I feel like in my day-to-day life, um, there's a fine line for me between questioning and like trusting the practice, um, in faith. I've never really, I feel like that word has, has it's, I've never really understood what that word meant. Faith. Uh, yeah.
2: Okay, well, thank you. Yeah, the faith. I thought about that quite often because right, I was doing this interfaith dialogue in the midst of it, I went to a AH Monastery. And right there, there's a whole different criteria. Um, I was seen, I think the, probably one of the most naive ones straight out of college. When I, I wasn't even out of college yet. And I, I think one of the supervisors right, right straightforward told me that, hey, you are annoying. <laughs> like Why did you even come to this temple? Because I kept thinking, where's the true practice? I want some sincerity. Like, nobody asks that kind of question. You simply shut up and follow. And then, so this questioning, I think everybody's goes through that. One time I, I was in the center of this, there's a service when I was there. Japan wasn't experiencing this decline of population. So we had like 200 practitioners uh, all gathered up in the hall. <laughs> and that was even before I knew how to form gashou and shashu properly. I went to the front because I was picked. And I said, why are people just talking in such a nasty way? I know I, I understand they're in under stress. But, but is that, does it even go along with the teaching of Shakyamuni Buddha's right speech? <laughs> I was called to one of the senior uh, priest's office that, um, that they, they were just shocked that somebody would ask something like, in a way, you know, we just follow the formalities all the time. And then deep down there, everybody has this subconsciously thinking of like, why we, why is it this way? Why do we have to do this? But it's like a little wave up in the w- waves in the ocean. But then there's deep down there, there's a little bit sense of trust and trustment. Um, but at the beginning, I, I didn't get it, especially I didn't go to Buddhist uh, department, Buddhist uh, uh, study um, in the college to, to, to study Buddhist, Buddhist study. So I guess I was missing, lacking that sort of fundamental understanding first that it's okay to go through these waves. But I, I was kind of caught up with these waves and I wanted to solve these questions and problems there. After I gave that question to the assembly, I mean, they told me that I was not supposed to ask something like that. (laughs) But then they revisited this question, and they started to sort of address this thing. Um, But now, at my age and the experience I went through, I I think there was definitely some self righteousness in me. (laughs) <laughs> and I can see why some senior monks are telling me that I was so annoying because I thought I, like, I knew what the right practice was and the whole purpose of monastic practice was just kind of free us from this preconception <laughs> because it's still kind of we're wandering around in the surface level but Vicky, as you said, it's true uh, what comes out is I quoted the the, the poems of the field lit and burnt. The experience I had was like a field. So we have this, I had this green flourishing field and they lit fire, it's got burned down. Uh, in My case, severely. and some just deal with this nicely. In my case, just completely burned down. But then I think what really shows us there is that after the fields get burned, the life comes back. And they say, that's the real deal. That's a real aspiration. Because whatever you have before that, (laughs) often accompanies a little preconception, you know, the ideas about should be and should not be. Mm -hmm. Really liberating, (laughs) although it was painful for me.
5: Yeah, I I grinned when you said self-righteous because I I definitely relate to that. And we are the same age. And I, you know, at at this point in my life, I've definitely chilled out a lot (laughs) Uh, so thank you
2: Um, thank you for the question let's
1: see just for a couple minutes if Rob or Mia or Kate if you'd like to say anything where you are and any thoughts you might have Mia yeah
4: um, just quickly, first of all, thank you very much. Um, what uh, You remind me of really what attracts me the most to uh, uh, really the core of Buddhism, and uh, it's the searching and the connectedness, those two things. Uh, and what I've appreciated the most tonight is so many times, um, partic- maybe particularly the older generation, really tells you, you know how things are and and what you should be doing and how leading you, if nothing else and what I really can't tell you how profoundly I appreciate is your humility and openness in your seeking for truth and seeking for the path of Buddhism because for those of us who are seekers, um no matter what path you you know it isn't a clear answer, and i'm I'm older than all probably all of you, and it's like you know, you end up with so many questions and such humility, uh, if your eyes are open and, and I just appreciate the way you presented uh, tonight. It really, um, it really means a lot. And I'm here in Beverly, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> Thank you.
2: Thank you, Mia. the Comments. appreciate it. It's nice to meet you.
6: You know, if, uh, thank you so much. And uh, I think, it, you know, one of the things that just um, I connected with this, this year, you know, this, uh, this, the, the, the gra- un, ungroundedness of like, like failure, like, and I'm, I'm a teacher and uh, this the beginning, particularly the beginning of this fall has been, was really, really difficult with. The hybrid, you know, in half in person, half hybrid using technology. Um, sound goes out. I have ten people online and ten people in front of me with masks, and I really felt that I was in an ocean, and I was drowning. And I, uh, I hadn't had that that feeling, and um, and I felt that a number of times actually. Including today, you know, the teaching, and, and I, I saw one of my old students, Adam, Joan. You might remember Adam from Kaz Tanahashi, and it, you know, said, "How are you doing?" And I, and it came up again, the the, the feeling of utter failure, and drowning in an ocean. Um, and I don't know where I am with that, but that 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 sort of, you know, some somewhere in there, that idea of a sangha being an ocean and the water being boundlessness of ocean, but yet it's everything. I, and I, and I just—I—I I I don't know where that understanding is, but I, I thank you for that. And I'm going to, I don't know, swim in it. So thank you. thank
2: you. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it as a parent for everything you do for your students. Thank you. Wish you all the best.
1: Yes, thank you, Kate. Rob, last word?
0: Uh, sure. <laughs> thank you very much. I'm very new to all of this, the Buddhism and Zen, so I'm still learning. And I think, as you said, I lack a fundamental understanding of everything. So <laughs> I appreciate hearing your experiences and your, your practice. And it helps me learn. So thank you.
2: Thank you, Robert. Yeah, nice to meet you.
1: Yeah, thank you, everybody, for speaking and um, giving Gyoke a sense of who else is here on the screen. I think it's it's a wonderful challenge in the age of Zoom to transcend the two dimensions and warm them up a little bit. So thank you. And Gyoke, thank you so much for your, it is true, yes, your kind, sweet humility, sincerity. It's very, very refreshing. It's good to hear your voice. Thank you.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode. This podcast is made possible by donations from listeners like you. For more information or to donate, please go to
4: www.zencenternorthshore.org. Thank you.